Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 25th, 2016. It's a Wednesday, and this is episode uh, 1794 of the Survival Podcast. And given that it's a Wednesday, of course, we have a special guest uh, today. It's an interview show, which is what we generally do on Wednesdays, unless something changes that. Today's special guest is Benjamin Ellison, who is an author and uh, going to talk to us today about his book, That's a children's novel called The Land Without Color. He's also, we're going to talk quite a bit today, really more than about his book, about teaching self-reliance and self-sufficiency to our children so that we can raise self-sufficient, self-reliant young people that turn into self-reliant young adults. Uh, I, I personally think this is one of the most important things we can be doing as parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles today, because we are literally in the middle of an epidemic of children who stay children until they're 30 years old. And I know some of the people in this audience, you guys are 20-somethings, and when I talk about the millennial generation and its problems, you take it personally and you get upset. And if you're getting upset, you're probably not one of the people we're talking about. Um, I think it's important I kind of point that out, because many of you are now beginning to have children and raising your own children. And the, the reality is generationally, a, a massive mistake was made between the time... Baby boomers, Generation X, Generation Y, and Millennials. Things just got worse and worse and worse. You know, the participation trophies and things like that. It, it just really has resulted in the concept that we have to protect, protect children from themselves, that we have to protect children from failure, that we have to protect children from trying really hard but not getting what they wanted. Instead of saying, well, you tried really hard, that's great, You almost got what you wanted. That's good. And now what you should do is go try even harder so you can actually achieve something. We, we've lost that. And I think that we are beginning to realize we've lost it. I think that all of the generations involved, and I think this is one of the things that you have to say to be fair to this current generation of young people today, is they didn't screw themselves up. We did, and our parents did. We did it. We were the ones that looked at these people, you know, we that are in our 40s and 50s, that have children now in their teens to 20s. We're the ones that looked at them and said, oh, we don't want them to fail. Oh, let's not keep score in a basketball game because it's all about fun and somebody will lose. We're the ones that put Easter eggs in the middle of a parking lot so that everybody can find eggs. We're the ones that did this stuff. And that means we are the ones that need to be part of fixing it. We really do. And a big part of that is teaching children the concept of preparedness. Preparedness, as I've said many times on this show, is not about stocking up a bunker. Preparedness is about being, dun-dun-dun, responsible. If you are not a prepper in, in the most you know basic version of what the word means, a prepared individual for things to go wrong so you can handle them yourselves, what you are then is an irresponsible adult. You know, you, you, you're not responsible. In, in my father's generation and back, being prepared was called being responsible. Just saying. So we're going to talk about things like that with Ben today. And we're going to talk about his book. 
Really great book. We're going to talk a little bit about how he was partially inspired by a documentary called The Secret of Oz, which if you haven't seen The Secret of Oz, you should see The Secret of Oz. But we'll tell you like some of the big things about that today, too. Kind of an interesting discussion I didn't expect to have with Ben when I heard he was going to be on the air. But we'll get to all that and more in just a bit. First, let's take a look at some historical context and look at the year 1794. Since the episode is 1794, Alex Shrugged has two up for us today. We have Captain Nelson is master after God in the British West Indies. And we have the Whiskey Rebellion. And uh, in other news, we have the leaders of the French Reign of Terror are beheaded. Good. We heard about what they were doing yesterday. Well, apparently, karma came quickly. The U.S. Navy is established. The Navy has been around in various forms since 1775. But this year, plans are authorized for six new frigates at the cost of over a half million dollars. And we have, Hermias Darwin publishes Zoonomia, or the Laws of Organic Life. He is the grandfather of Charles Darwin. Hermias suggests that life might have evolved all the way back in 1794. Anyway, I'm going to read the Whiskey Rebellion because it's such an important lesson in empowering government and what always happens when you do. American foreign policy teeters on a nice edge. The United States declares itself neutral in the wars of Europe. This is a good decision in the long run, but it has an immediate economic consequences in practical sense. Neutrality means the Amer America cannot sell its goods in European markets. For example, if America attempts to sell goods to France, the British and Austrians will object. This may explain why Captain Nelson had been interceding in America's shipping lately. The United States is a market for European goods, but Europe does not buy much from America in comparison. James Madison wanted to place an excise tax on foreign goods, but Alexander Hamilton blocked him. An excise tax would destroy the U.S. economy, so Hamilton proposed a tax on locally produced distilled spirits. It's called the whiskey tax. While it's an avoidable tax in most, American, in most of American society, in the Western region, the production of whiskey is a means of preserving and storing excess grain. Whiskey is also used for barter, so a tax on whiskey is an onerous burden in Western Pennsylvania and Kentucky. For most Americans, the federal government is a distant thing, like a king who carelessly imposes taxes on his helpless subjects. And didn't they just fight a war about that? Pennsylvania distillers stop paying the tax. Federal marshals show up and someone shoots at them. 500 protesters attack the head tax collector's home. George Washington rides out with 13,000 militiamen to put down the rebellion. But by the time he gets there, the protesters have dispersed. A few leaders are arrested, but later they are pardoned and released. The federal government has proven that it can maintain order, but they still can't collect the tax. Thomas Jefferson will sign the repeal of the tax. My take by Alex Shrug. By the way, the Sons of Liberty built a fake guillotine to remind American government where the risky rebellion might lead. I'd call that a threat. The reign of terror in France came to an end in 1794, but the repercussions were still being felt. The government of the United States was never a sure thing. Today we look back and see the path they took. We wonder at their genius, but historians have smoothed over a lot of the rough spots. Don't forget that I'm smoothing over a lot of rough spots, too, when I focus on one aspect of history. The rest goes unnoticed. The Republican leadership feel that the Federalists were leading them back to a monarchy. Alexander Hamilton's efforts were critical to the sense of the United States, but he almost brought the whole thing down. The founders had their faults. They were not gods. Many of them were not even very nice people, but they balanced each other out. What grew out of those days was a government very close to what Thomas Jefferson had envisioned. 
but it was being moving. It was, but it has been moving toward federalism once again. Our congressmen have become minor princes, and our senators are minor kings. We need to close up the, that museum in Washington and move everyone into a proper office space, or let them work out of their homes. We no longer require leaders to be in the same room to negotiate, and will be a lot easier on their marriages too. I think that so the whiskey rebellion is is an interesting thing because what people say is you know we fought this this war this this revolution over taxation and then the first one of the first things the government does is install a tax that's seen as unfair that creates a rebellion first I'd like to point out the nice thing is they weren't able to collect it it didn't work people said no this isn't going to happen but you, you do run up into a fundamental reality here that if you're going to have a government If you're going to have a government, if you're going to have a state, the state has to operate, and a state has to operate with revenue, and that revenue has to come from somewhere. And there's a couple different ways that can happen. The state can actually create money, a certain amount of money every year, and spend it into existence. That's true fiat currency. It's not what we have. But then you can't trust the government to do that because they'll just print as much as they need all the time, and they'll put no cap or restriction on the money. Uh, so... The government has only one other way to raise revenue, and that is through taxation, either uh, is fees or licensure or straight taxes or sales tax or what have you. And the original Constitution did not give the government the power to tax income. Uh, a lot of people say the 16th Amendment didn't fix that for them, but they just do it anyway. But they really didn't, at least they didn't believe they did. So they had to tax something. So they chose to, chose to tax whiskey, which is like a sin tax type of thing. You know, That's why cigarettes have like a bazillion percent tax on them today because it doesn't affect everybody, just people that choose to smoke. right? So how would a government remain a small government but perform the functions that a government is supposed to, to perform like morodes, right? One of the biggest things this country needs at this time in its history is infrastructure. It needs roads. It's mud holes everywhere. They need roads to see to expansion. We are not even really thinking about railroads yet, right? But we need roads to connect the cities, and we need them to be maintained. How is the government going to do that without taxation? Now, I do believe there's ways to run a, run a society without a state, but that's not where their mindset was. So if you were the founders, and if you've always been one of these people that said, the Whiskey Rebellion shows that the new government was going to tax and you know do it unfairly, What type of tax would you have implemented that you would have considered fair and reasonable, given that you were going to have to tax something if you were part of the founders of the country? I'd love to hear your ideas on that in today's show notes. Remember, to build roads, we have gas taxes today, and I guess we could have had a horse tax. Who knows? Anyway, with that in mind, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, why don't you show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at tspgear.com where we have awesome tools like the Pocket Shot Slingshot and the TSP Edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives, along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. 
All right, with that, I want to welcome our special guest today. Benjamin Elfson is an award-winning author of the prepper-themed children's novel, The Land Without Color. In his writing, he enjoys creating magical parables filled with preparedness, self-reliance, and libertarian themes. He is the father of four daughters who works hard to instill the values of self-reliance and self-sufficiency in his children. Benjamin has been a TSP listener since the days of the mobile podcast, He's here today to talk about ta teaching your children about self-reliance and prepping. And with that, hey, Ben, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really glad to have you on the air with us today. I, I love talking about prepping, especially as it relates to kids and raising self-reliant uh, young adults from you know self-reliant young children. And I, I love what you've done with your book. I think that's great. But I wanted to kind of start out with what I do with everybody. Can you tell... Uh, the audience, kind of how you, you, you got into doing what you're doing. What was your professional background, you know, before you were writing children's books and, and talking about prepping? And, you know, how did you get into that, and, and how did it lead you to preparedness? Sure. Um, well, my schooling was on film production. I went to a school out in California, and I did that for a little while, but that industry didn't work so well for me, and I ended up falling into web development. So my full-time job is I'm a programmer and uh, make websites. And the the writing really started as a hobby, um, largely out of my interest in prepping and wanting to share that idea. So for prepping, I, uh, I grew up in the Minneapolis suburbs, uh, a typical rough-and-tumble boy's childhood. But my family's idea of food storage was one week at the most. And their idea of the outdoors was walking to the car in the driveway or maybe going to the beach. So I didn't have much prepper influence at home. The one thing I did have, though, was summer camp. Every summer I'd spend a week in the woods, first at day camp, and, and then when I was older at overnight camp. And I absolutely love this time and really fell in love with the outdoors. So my my interest in prepping really started from that seed of loving the outdoors and being in the wilderness at camp. And then as I grew, I often dreamed of living in that cabin in the woods. But life went on and I got swept up in school and had some you know fun out in California. And got caught up in the corporate grind when I got into programming, and but that and that, so that idea of the cabin in the woods kind of always stayed a dream. Years went by, and I got married. I had some kids, and after some hard work of climbing the corporate ladder, I was finally able to buy a house in the country with a few acres, and it was it was beautiful, really nice. I loved it, on uh, a nice large wooded lot. But it really wasn't a homestead yet, and I really didn't know anything about prepping. Uh, that really came after I experienced my first disaster in life, uh, my divorce. Uh, getting divorced for me was was really hard. and I, More than anything, I wanted to be married and have a family. So when that fell apart, I was devastated. I thought my life was over. And so as an effort to kind of keep moving forward, I refocused my life and working towards that dream of uh, living off-grid and a little cabin deep in the woods. 
So I started researching on the internet. And the idea in my head was to become a hermit and live alone in the woods and become a survivalist. But I really didn't understand what that meant at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I started researching and I first found uh, the survival blog. And it was interesting and I liked it and I learned some things there, but it's really dense to read and a little overwhelming. And that's when I stumbled across your podcast. I think you were on, oh, I, I don't know, about episode 100, maybe 150, back when you had the uh, the mobile podcast. Gotcha. I think it was just after you created the member support brigade. I know I wanted to be one of the founder members of that, but I missed the deadline by a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I instantly fell in love with your show, and I went back and I listened to every episode. And some of those, the, like the first 10, are some of my favorite ones. And uh, so it was really your show that I, I first learned of the idea of prepping and learning about food storage and disaster preparedness and self-sufficiency and self-reliance. So uh, like many of your listeners, I really do want to thank you, Jack, for, for all your hard work on your show and for being such a, a big influence on me, my life, and my writing. Well, thank you for doing something with it. I mean, that's what we're here to do is create action. And, and in that action, um, you uh, have, you know, started writing books and all. But before we get into the book itself, what is the biggest thing that motivates you personally as a prepper to this day? Well, for me, the hardest thing is fighting normalcy bias. I grew up in a family that was 100% connected to what I like to call the American lie. And that's the idea that there are dangers out there everywhere, and all you need to do is just surrender everything to the government, and they're going to take care of you, and nothing bad will ever happen to you personally. This idea that everything can be solved by the government just taxing the rich. And... It was really that idea and that thinking that I was raised with that was at the root of a lot of my personal disasters in life. Um, for example, the first house I bought, the, the house in the country there, was way above what I could afford. But I was sold in this idea that my income would only ever go up and the house value would only ever go up and things will only ever get better. And it was a beautiful house and beautiful lot. And so I accepted that lie against my gut because it was easy and it was fun. And everyone I trusted told me that it was the right thing to do. And But that was before the housing crash and before I learned from you one of my now very core beliefs. And that belief is that debt is cancer. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure I would have even heard that message if I wasn't in the middle of a debt spiral at the time. But living through it, it really became clear, and I saw that as just such a true part, uh, fact of life. It's another interesting comparison to cancer that I've never thought of before, but if you want to find a person that's an expert on something, find an expert that fought and survived a, a serious cancer. I guess all cancers are serious, but you know, a life-threatening cancer. And uh, they'll generally know more about that cancer than a general practitioner doctor. So when oh, yeah. something affects you, you become pretty informed when you have to survive and get out the other side of it. Oh, that is so true. Now, unfortunately for me, 
I did learn that lesson a little too late. And um, between my divorce, the housing crash, and then a job loss, I ended up losing the house and declaring Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that was a very painful, humiliating process. But thankfully, I had learned of prepping a little before that and had stored up some food. And as I was going through the bankruptcy, uh, eating up my preps was it made me survive uh, as I didn't have money to pay for food each month. So that that part of motivating me as a prepper is part of that is my own personal disasters that I've gone through and I've um, experienced. And the desire to be able to better cope with future disasters when they strike. Um, for example, it's now two years since my bankruptcy and I have zero debt. It feels great. No credit cards. I have no loans. I'm still working my way up from the bottom and I really don't have any assets. But I refuse to take that credit to feel like I'm climbing faster because I know that it's it's false. Yeah, you're going to pay for it sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I, I learned that the hard way. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the other part of uh, the other thing that motivates me to be a prepper is really just watching the political reality in the United States. I've learned about the, the Federal Reserve and the bubbles it creates. And I watched the country as it gets more and more in debt with fiat spending, kind of like kind of like I did with credit card spending and, and having a house I couldn't afford. And having been through that, I, my heart just aches for the impending disaster for the country. And I really hope it's not as bad as I fear. So those two kind of keep me motivated and keep me focused on prepping. But the funny thing is, despite that, even now I still struggle with normalcy bias because that's what I was raised with, and um, so it's so easy to get lulled back back into complacency. So I really need to keep focused on those two things to kind of shake me out of it. So I do continue to remind myself by watching videos and documentaries and, and listening to your podcast about the likely and inevitable uh, dangers and disasters ahead so that I could stay focused and, and keep preparing myself mentally and, and, and with preps. And that's why, you know, some of my favorite episodes of yours are really the economic ones. Um, partially, I love the gardening ones, but I don't have the land where I can garden right now. So it, it, it kind of goes in my head and stored there for when I can use it. But uh, the ep- economic ones really help keep me awake as I get distracted with the daily routine of life and, and start to drift back asleep. And, you know, I find people such as yourself that are, that are parents that have been through these tough things and have put their life back on track and are, are making sure not only do I get to where I'm going, but if I get knocked off the path along the way, they want to uh, instill those same values in their children because we all know that we're all going to go through these types of things. And, you know, your kids never quite do everything that you want them to do, but uh, <laughs> yeah. getting that, that mentality into them young is, is really important because it, it makes them able to navigate on their own. Because what I've always said is if you're a good parent, then your, your goal is to work yourself out of a job as quickly as possible. Not that you won't always be their dad or their mom, but when it comes to the, uh, the authoritarian part of being a parent, if you're good at what you do, you should be reducing that authority every year all the way down, and that comes from getting kids you know, up and running on their own so they can provide their own discipline. 
And oh, a big part so of that is, you know, is, is preparedness, self-reliance, things like that. What are you as a father doing to get your kids thinking that way? Well, that's, that's actually one of my favorite things. Um, having children is, is really a blessing. But to me, the, the hands-down best part about having children is teaching them things and watching them grow. And, and like you say, you know, weaning yourself out of a job as they become more self-sufficient, self-reliant. But I can think of no better lessons than to teach your kid than uh, prepping. With my kids, um, I found that you need to do several things. First, you need to pique their interest about prepping. And then let them have some hands-on experience in fun ways. And finally, you, you can help steer them, but you really do need to let them drive with their questions and their interest to see where they want to learn. Because every child is going to be different, and they're going to have different things that they're focused on. Now, one great way to do this, I think, is uh, through summer camp. Now, for me, it really instilled that sense of wonder and love for nature, and I learned some great skills. But it was also that seed for me of getting into prepping. So I'll, with my kids, I made sure to send them off to summer camp first the day camp and then overnight camp as soon as they were old enough. And then I also like to supplement that with uh, camping trips of our own, uh, take them out and spend the weekend at the campgrounds. And It's great to get outdoors, have a lot of fun, but it really is that perfect opportunity to kind of teach them survival and, and prepper-related skills. Now, one of my, uh, my favorite memories was when I taught my girls how to build a campfire. And I think this is a great thing that parents can do with their kids. So I started by taking them in the backyard, and I showed them several different techniques on how to build a fire. The teepee approach, the log cabin approach, explaining each step as I went and why I was doing things that way. And then I got the fire going for them to see, and then I uh, put a fire out and let them each build their own. So I'm sitting there in the backyard with four little girls, each with their little pile of sticks, building their own little fires. And I tell you, there's simply nothing more exciting than to watch your children experiment and learn. Which, I just love it. And uh, so, as they were building their fire, I would give them advice and kind of help them as needed. But really let them do it themselves. Now, when I taught them how to build a fire, our goal was always the one-match fire. Mm. So, you know, I told them, if you can start a fire with one match without paper, then you know you've built it correctly. And especially when they're learning, I really stress that. And uh, so this has got a real important if you ever have a real survival situation and your matches are limited. So now that they've learned how to do that, every time we go camping, it's their job to make the fire and kind of tend to it, um, just to kind of keep that experience and keep that love for them. And I do find that uh, there really is nothing better than building self-confidence in your kids by having them make some goals that are achievable, but but a little difficult. They need to practice and work at and learn and then finally achieve it. And there is uh, certainly nothing as primal and exciting as building a, a campfire. And uh, so I think that's a real great technique 
that you can use to get your kids interested in prepping. Yeah, and I think it's good to let them do it, right? I mean, I, I remember when my grandson, I, you know, was just getting all his words together where he could be cogent. He was like three years old, and when he was putting his shoes on, I remember him saying, "Me do it," right? <laughs> and it just shows. I mean, it's they're, they're, they want to be able to do things. These young people we have today that have their, you know, the adults in their life doing everything for them have been conditioned to that. It's not a natural human state to want other people to do stuff for you, especially when you're a kid. If you if you have a, a positive environment for experimentation, you're you know little kids are always pushing the envelope. How far can they take it by themselves? And if we take that away from them, then we're doing the opposite of our job. Exactly. Yeah, and and you really need to let them fall down and and get hurt and uh, and pick themselves back up uh, to really have them learn fully kind of on that are there any other ideas you have for helping kids learn self-reliance i've got a few uh now one other thing i did with my girls is i enrolled them in girl scouts for several years and i was even the troop leader for the two older kids for a couple years and i could not speak highly enough about the boy and girl scouts um it's a fun activity for the kids and they're going to learn some excellent lessons without even realizing it they learn about camping and wilderness. They learn about making goals and working hard to achieve them. And with the Girl Scouts, they've got the whole cookie selling. So that's, uh, I mean, really a goal-oriented. But they also learn about being an upstanding, honest, and responsible person. All things that I believe are a, a big part of being self-reliant. And <laughs> sadly, lessons that I think are forgotten in today's schools. But also with the Scouts... Uh, they get to learn from somebody else, and it's great to have multiple influences reinforcing the same ideas and values. But I think uh, I've also heard you say the quote. I, I can't remember exactly. It's like a prophet is without honor in his own home, or something uh, like that. Prophet has no honor in his own country. I believe it's from Proverbs. I'm not sure uh, of that, but I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, and uh, I, I I think that is so true. And if you can get somebody else to help teach prepper ideas to your kids, I think they will absorb it in a way um, sometimes more efficiently than coming right from you. And Scouts is a great way to do that, basically outsourcing your prepper ideas. Also, I, I think um, another idea that I've got that uh, I think is great to teach your kids prepping is by making a homemade first aid kit with your kids. Now, first aid kits are something that really get used a lot in a house full of kids, and they quickly get depleted. So it's a perfect thing to keep focused on keeping stocked in the house. Now, for activities like this, I also find always find the best way is start by writing a list. I'm a huge proponent of lists. Get your ideas down. So setting up a first aid kit, you can sit down with your kids and kind of discuss with them, what do you think we need to have in a first aid kit? And really asking those questions and getting them to come up with their ideas uh, as much as possible really helps them absorb it. And depending on their age, you may help more or less with that list. Um, so once you've got that list written down, go take them to the store to buy the supplies. And I think it's really important to make a special trip just for that. 
Because if you do that, instead of when you're going and buying a bunch of other groceries, it really will stick in their heads a lot more. And they'll become a lot more invested in it. Especially if they get to be the one that pick out the Band-Aids or whatever else you buy. When they're making the decisions, uh, they really take ownership of it. So once you've got all the supplies, you go home and you assemble the kit. And it, it, having them do the assembling and put it in a place where they know where it is really builds that experience and, and drives it home in their, in their minds. So the next time when your kids get a scrape or a bump and a bruise, you go ahead and grab that kit and it should be right there ready and waiting. And then now when you're applying the Band-Aids, you can reinforce these ideas of prepping by saying things like, you know, aren't, aren't you glad we've got this first aid kit with everything we need right here? Or, you know, let's, let's make sure to keep this stocked up. Or maybe, you know, what else do we need to buy for this? Things like that. And they can easily see that value of, of being prepared with Band-Aids. And because Band-Aids get used up so quickly with kids, you could frequently reinforce this idea of making sure that the Band-Aids stay stocked up and then think about, well, what else in the house um, do we want to keep stocked up to make sure we don't have to run to the store every time we need something? Gotcha. Very cool. I mean, I, I do think it's really important to get them to take owner of stuff, ownership of things. I mean, that... I mean, I've seen it with just everything, even like, you know, gardening. Try to get a kid to eat their vegetables. Yeah, <laughs> right? But if they grew it, they've got it in their mouth before you have it washed off in the sink. You know? <laughs> yep. Which is another reason for, you know, using uh, organic methods because your kids are going to eat this stuff before you get it cleaned. <laughs> You're not careful. Oh, that's so true. So um, you wrote this book, and it's called Land Without Color. What's what's this book all about? Well, The Land Without Color uh, is an adventure about a boy who blows an enormous bubblegum bubble, flies above the clouds, and lands in a world where all of the color has been stolen by goblins. It's a fantasy story that follows a 12-year-old Alvin as he finds himself with only his pocket knife in the kingdom of color. But to his surprise, everything is gray. The sky is gray, the ground is gray, the trees are gray, the animals, and even the people are all gray. And he uh, meets up with a squirrel named Permy, who is a prepper, it's got supplies stored all over the kingdom. And then Alvin soon learns of the goblins who stole the color uh, when he's mistaken for one and thrown into the goblin prison. So Alvin and Permi set out to escape the prison, find the goblins, and restore the color to the land. Along the way, they have to venture into the, the sugar desert, uh, battle man-eating plants, outsmart the crimson guards, figure out how to get past the two-headed dragon, rescue the princesses, and learn the importance of eating your vegetables. It really is a, a silly, fun tale similar to the Phantom Tollbooth or The Wizard of Oz. Now, The uh, Land Without Color is a, a middle-grade chapter book with over 80 illustrations. So this means that really is ideally suited for grades four to six to read on their own and then younger kids to be read to. But it was also written for adults to appreciate and enjoy. 
there's a lot of nostalgic moments and, and subtext and symbolism that adults will pick up on. And so far, most of the readers and feedback that I've received are from adults who just love it. That's very cool, man. Um, I, do, I would imagine, based on the discussion, you have some prepping themes throughout the book. Could we maybe talk about those? Yeah, uh, there's actually quite a lot of prepper themes in the book. Uh, at the beginning of the book, Alvin gets a Swiss Army pocket knife as a birthday present. And then throughout the adventure, he uses this knife in different situations to escape or solve problems. So in an, an exaggerated yet still subtle way, the readers learn the value of everyday carry items and how they can help you. Then there's a character, uh, Permi the Squirrel, and she really is the embodiment of prepping in the book. And uh, for years before Alvin arrived to the kingdom, Permeed collected various supplies and stored them in these acorn pails, these giant acorn-shaped buckets, and buried them in the ground all over the kingdom. So then throughout the story, whenever she needs them, uh, she can just pull out her preps. Uh, again, it's another subtle way that the readers can glean the value of having been prepared without the long exposition explaining how to package and store food. Kind of skips over that technical descriptions and just captures the reader imagination with the story. So it really isn't a, a prepper manual, but a, a story with prepper themes. Well, I mean, you're you're just taking it back to you know, man, the grasshopper type thing. It's it's not you should be prepared because it's here's an example of what happens when you are versus an example of what happens when you're not. So it's it's a demonstrate in order to emulate is another thing I'm fond of saying. So by yeah, demonstrating yeah. actually the the positives of being prepared, people naturally, even young people themselves, then um, kind of see the potential for the negative. Well, I'm glad that was there, right? <laughs> like when you yep. – there's, there's no worse thing in the world than having a flat tire and getting out the spare – and the spare's oh, yeah. flat, that sucks, right? So, <laughs> you know, even if you checked it last week, when you get a flat and you pull your spare out, you're like, come on, man. <laughs> so when yeah. people experience stuff, whether they see it in a story or in their own lives, it does reinforce the concept. Oh, yeah, and stories are such a great way to, to live vicariously through this fictional character, um, both in movies, but uh, books are a little better. You get a little bit more deeper and more involved. Um, they really think a lot more. Uh, movies tend to be a little bit more emotional. But yeah, you could you could feel and go through experiences. And whether it's a, a more of a disaster book where it's kind of all these bad things that have happened because you're not prepared, or the opposite of all of these good things that are the bad things you were saved from because you were prepared are great lessons. I think that actually is more effective on people, right? Because we have a tendency in our minds to identify with with smart characters, with successful characters, right? We're when we when we see somebody that's unsuccessful, we have more of a tendency to ostracize them in our minds, right? Well, they were dumb or they were stupid or they were weak, and that would have never happened to us. So I don't know that people get the same reinforcement from a character that experiences a bunch of negative things. But they, they definitely get it because they want to be like the successful character. Um, it's probably why guys our age would rather read a book about, you know, uh, some awesome secret agent guy or something like that. 
versus, you know, some guy that's failed miserably throughout his whole life. Because in our heads, we're still that little boy that used to play secret agent, right? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> we identify with people that succeed, at least internally we tend to. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. So what was actually the inspiration for writing this book and and what have you? I mean, the concept of being without color, that's kind of unique. How, you know, where did all this come from? Sure. Um, well, I had a lot of different ideas and inspiration for the book. Now, your podcast and a lot of the things I learned from you did heavily influence me. For example, uh, the character Permi the Squirrel is loosely based off of uh, permaculture and the Permi's Forum I learned of of after listening an interview you did with uh, Paul Wheaton. But uh, the real impetus to writing came when I saw the documentary The Secret of Oz. Ah. Yeah, great movie. And uh, this movie talked about the book The Wizard of Oz and about its origins and the symbolism behind that, such as the, uh, the scarecrow representing the farmers and the tin man representing the factory workers. So at the time, I was learning all of these new ideas about prepping, and they were all swirling around in my head. And then when I saw the documentary, I discovered how much deeper the story of Oz was. I'd only ever known that service layer before, but my eyes were open. And when that happened, all of these ideas in my head began connecting with fantasy ideas. And I would think about these things and would quickly see a symbol representation of them in my head. My first vision was that the bubble, the bubble, giant bubblegum lift, bubble, lifting the hero into the air and carrying him into this fantastic kingdom. So it, it started there. And I started writing these elements down in a notebook, and soon I had a few characters and a few events, and that led to an arc for the story. And this process took about a year, kind of writing these little notes, listening to your podcast, and watching different documentaries, and reading different books mostly nonfiction, kind of absorbing these ideas and the elements in the story. And then when I had a uh, chapter outline and a few days of vacation, I finally sat down and just started writing. And to my amazement, it just flowed out of me. It was really almost like this book existed in the universe, and it was just channeling me to get onto paper. It really was surreal. And while I was on vacation... I hammered out three chapters a day, and by the end, I was more than halfway through the book. So a couple of more weeks later, writing in the evenings, and I was done. Very cool, man. I think maybe we should talk a little bit about The Secret of Oz, because there's probably a lot of people out there that haven't seen it. They, they have no idea how that might have influenced you. Um, the the movie I was is Bill Sill or Still. I can't remember which one's a comedian, the other's the economist guy. And I think one of the problems that that documentary has had is it comes off in the end advocating that government should create money through basically fiat. And you can yeah. or disagree with that. But that, that, that almost really detracts from the, the real component of that movie, which is how money is used to manipulate and control people, and that that was what The Wizard of Oz was all about. And the one thing in there that stuck in my head that will never go away that I did not know is in the original story, Dorothy did not have ruby slippers. Yep. Dorothy had silver slippers, 
And you, you have Dorothy traveling with people that represent all of the people that are having trouble because this is a, you know, the movie came out right around the time of the depression, but the, the story came out during a different time of depression. Yep. And they're traveling down the, the, with silver slippers down the golden road yep. to the Emerald City. Uh-huh. And it's fascinating because rubies are valuable, but when you take away the silver slippers, th- there's almost no way that a person will see the symbolism for what it was. And it's why they took it away. Because it was like, oh, this is too obvious. Because silver and gold were about hard currency. And mm-hmm. then emerald, of course, being greenbacks, right? Yep. Or, or paper currency. And the man behind the curtain really has no power at all unless you believe in him. And really, you have all the power, but you've been misled. And he's the banker. And you, you, you watch that documentary and you realize... This was the type of thing that people did to get a story out that they couldn't get out in another way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that that's uh, so fascinating. And that's why I really just love that movie. And, boy, it's been a few years. So I can't remember it totally. But, yeah, the, the greenbacks for the Emerald City, the the, the, the silver shoes and the, the gold road. I totally didn't realize that, you know, watching the movie with the ruby slippers. And at the time I watched it, I was learning about the Federal Reserve and fiat spending that I I didn't know anything about growing up. They never taught me that in school, and my parents never taught me anything about that. And I really learned that from you. And one of the other influences in writing The Land Without Color was while I was writing it, I was also reading the book A Creature from Shekel Island, which is probably my favorite book. Uh, Just amazing and changed the way I understood the world and a lot if you if you've read that book and then you read the land without color you will see a lot of the influences in the story very cool man um why did you decide to self-publish your book I kind of think I know but I'm going to ask anyway sure (laughs) well that was really a hard decision uh my first thought was to go the traditional route and the advantage I saw is that I could just write the book and hand it off to someone else to go sell and move on to writing the next book. But while I was submitting the book to different agents, I also did a lot of research. And I learned that traditionally publishing has changed a lot recently. These days, authors don't just write and hand off the book. Uh, traditionally published authors today really need to do their own marketing. And so I figured, well, if I'm going to do all the work writing it and all the work marketing it, what do I really gain from a traditional publisher? And that answer is you get two things. You get prestige and the initial seed money. And that's about it. And it was that that seed money isn't even guaranteed because if your book flops, you need to pay back in advance. But really that last component was who gets the final say in the text in a traditional publishing world, the author rarely gets the final say on the text. Since they're putting up the money, they can change any part of the story, the words they want. And that really did not sit too well with me. Especially because I am a big opponent of political political correctness. I think political correctness is a cancer on Western civilization that is (laughs) eating it from within. 
in my book, The Land Without Color is definitely not politically correct. There were several scenes with uh, libertarian themes and uh, that would definitely get cut or changed if I ran it through a uh, traditional publisher. Especially with a kid's book, man. Oh, I big mean. Time. <laughs> you know, my editors, they even noted in several spots, you know, this isn't politically correct. It's really going to hurt your sales. And I said, you know what? Thanks for the, the input, but as self-published, I get the final say. And uh, I kept it in the book because it's kind of my way of pushing back against politi- political correctness. Yeah. So I went, I went the indie route, and uh, I did this by launching a successful Kickstarter campaign last August. And I raised uh, $7,000 to fund the printing, and then I paid for the rest from the little savings I had. And now I tell you, I am so happy that I went the self-published route. And I've really become a, a champion for self-publishing and trying to uh, – I always try to buy and, and read and, and recommend and promote other indie authors of good books whenever I can. Very, very cool. So um, what's the response been like since you released your book? Uh, how, how has it done? Uh, it's been very well. I've, it's truly humbling. Uh, getting the response. When, when you write a book, you really put every essence of your being into it. And you work hard in every chapter, every sentence, every word, just to make sure it can be the best it can be. And when you're done, hopefully you, you read it and you say, wow, that's a good book. <laughs> uh, otherwise, you, you keep fixing it. You know. So I was real naturally happy and proud of my work. But I also realized that I was biased reading my own stuff and it's really easy to think something you made is great, even though... It's I'm a great. genius! <laughs> exactly. Um, so that, that's where the feedback and criticisms of others comes in, and to give you that reality check. And uh, so when the Land of Thought Color was printed in December, the first people to read it were naturally family and friends, and friends of friends, and my Kickstarter supporters. And they all liked it. But I knew their opinions were also a little biased. Um, so when they tell you, oh, it's a great book, and you're like, well, okay, you're my brother. You're going to say that anyway. But lately I've been getting a lot more feedback from complete strangers who found the book via social media, reviews, or other advertising, and their feedback has been real positive. In fact, uh, in the last two weeks, The Land Without Color has even won two literary awards. I'm very excited about it. Can, can you it tell won, us about those? Yeah, it, uh, it won the uh, Midwest... Independent Publishers Association Award in the category of uh, fantasy, sci-fi, horror, paranormal, kind of all lumped together. And then it won the uh, National Indie Excellence Awards uh, in the category of chapter books. So I, 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 just so humbling and exciting to be, to be recognized, and, and especially for a first book that I'm writing. Um, also, I, if you go check on Amazon, uh, I think I've got about six reviews there uh, last I checked, and I think I've got an average of like 4.7, 4.8 out of 5. So overall, the response has been real good. Um, but really, for me, the most exciting part is just the opportunity for the book to get out there into the world and get read. And I really hope that it can help spread these ideas of liberty and self-reliance and preparedness. Very cool, man. Um do you have any more books in the pipeline? I mean, usually an author, if they 
if if they do well with a book, they realize that they they have begun to develop a, a customer base and maybe start cranking out more. But I know they're also a heck of a lot of work. Yeah, you know, I do. Have, I've got some more. Uh, it's funny. I never really thought of myself as a writer. I always thought of myself as a filmmaker. And then I got into web development. All of a sudden, this passion for writing just bubbled up inside of me. Uh, the Land Without Color is actually the first in a trilogy. The second book, entitled The Great Sugar War, is already written, and the illustrator is almost done with the final illustrations. So right now, I'm planning on a Kickstarter campaign for it in September, with a December release date I'm shooting for. That would and, be good, because you're hitting Christmas, obviously. Yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and the last book uh, in the trilogy is called The Collapsing Kingdom. And you can start to pick up some of the themes in my titles. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it's already written as well. Uh, the illustrator has done all of the rough sketches for the book, but has not yet started the final illustrations. And again, I'm, I'm shooting for a December 2017 release for that. And then in addition to those that series... I have started uh, a new book series that I'm writing now, and I can't give away all the details, but I can tell you that it's a seven-book series that takes place in a completely different universe than The Land Without Color, okay. and um, it's prepping is still a prevalent theme in that, in that series, and right now I'm halfway through the fourth book, so my goal is to finish writing the entire series by the end of the year. And then I can start those through the finishing process of the editing, the proofreading, the illustrations, etc. So I really, I really hope to continue this uh, releasing one new book every year in December, um, unless any of my books take off, and I can uh, speed that up. Hopefully, if, you know, I, because every dollar that I make selling these books it goes straight into my next series uh, to release more prepper-related books. Very cool, man. And uh, you were going to uh, make available the the PDF of your book for free for MSB members, correct? Yes, yes. I I really hope all the MSB members can uh, can read it, and enjoy it, and then they can stay in the members uh, support grade for indefinitely. All I ask is if you do read it, if you could re- leave me a review on Amazon, I'd really appreciate it—an honest review. That, that, that would be that's always very very helpful to get reviews and uh, of course you know if you purchase a copy of the hard copy that also helps an author stay motivated to keep writing but you were <laughs> yeah. even going to give away a few of those right we're going to give away how many to the audience uh, today is like a contest uh, ten I got ten paperback copies to give away to the listeners cool so I think the easiest way for us to do that and I'll make sure that your email without a hyperlink uh, for your own spam benefit. Uh, is available in the show notes today in case anybody has trouble spelling your name, but I'll spell it here. Uh, anyway, the, the email address is going to be author at benjaminelfson.com, uh, and that last name is E-L-L-E-F-S-O-N, uh, but it will be right in the show notes. So what people should do then is send you an email, uh, and they should put land without color in the subject line. We'll give them, what, 48 hours? Does that work for you? That sounds great to me. Okay, so we'll slam your email box for 48 hours. Uh, and I'll, uh, p- please do this, guys. I'm sure Ben is not going to sell you to any kind of list or anything like that. Put your name and your physical address in the email, 
and he's going to randomly select 10, and I'm sure he'll just delete all the rest of the emails. He doesn't want to you know, sell you to some telemarketing company or something like that. But here's why I suggest you put your shipping address in. I've run contests like this, and I send an email back that says, you've won, please send me your shipping address. Then I get an email back that says, thank you, I'm so happy that I won. I said, that's great. And it, I've had that go back, and I've also had people, they just they they get a bounce from me or something, and if they do it that way, then you can just pick your 10 and send them their 10 books, right? That's a perfect idea. I love it. So um, get on by and check out uh, Ben's website again, which is BenjaminElfson.com. Uh, and again, it's his email for the contest author at BenjaminElfson.com. And uh, I really recommend if you're in the MSB, you definitely get the uh, the download of the book and, you know, spend some time reading it with your kids, man. And, and, and certainly... Uh, give Ben a, a review on Amazon in return for that because that's that's really nice of you to uh, to do that because you got like you said you like it, a book's like giving birth to a child it really you know? is and yeah. in some ways it's it you, like, you do more work right I know women are mad at me because of labor <laughs> I, no I'm not talking about it that way but like the actual work of making the child is pretty pleasurable and done pretty quickly right but yeah. like the book like you, you're deciding what it's going to be when it's born the entire time. Uh, and the labor period is often longer than nine months. And when you're done with that, you feel like you've actually – and for, for an author like you that does fictional writing, you've actually created characters that, that didn't exist. It, it's, a, it's a pretty big deal then to be willing to give that away. Yeah, well, I, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, uh, Ben, I thank you for being with us today and uh, appreciate you being on the air and love to have you back when your next book comes out. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I also want to thank you, Jack, for the great show. Uh, the Survival Podcast is a part of my life, and it really has changed my life for the better. And so I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, I appreciate that very much, sir. And with that, uh, we'll move into the closing for today's show. All right, great interview, great guy. Make sure you uh, get by the uh, MSB sometime soon, and it'll be on the downloads page where the eBooks are. Will be where it is. If you go to the benefits section for discounts, it will not be there. The free book is a free book, not a discount on a book. And remember how to uh, to give a shot at winning a free uh, hard copy of the book sent to you directly from Ben by sending him an email, and it'll also be in the show notes his email. Uh, if you didn't get a chance to write it down because you're listening mobile or something like that, you have 48 hours to do that. With that, I um, want to uh, remind you, if you like this show and the work that I do and you'd like, uh, do and you'd like to support it, the number one way you can do that is become an MSB member. And, hey, now you get this book for free. How cool is that? Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And that's all I'll say about the MSB today. Next up, we should be doing business with each other in this community. I think it's one of the strongest ways to build community is actually to do business within your own community and keep money within your own community. And we have moved to a point now where we have, I think, much stronger virtual communities in many ways than we have physical communities because communities are built on common ideals and common values. Well, one of the common ideas and values that we talk about today is self-reliance and independence, and a lot of that is built on entrepreneurship and building something of your own. That's why I founded the TSP Business Directory, and today's supporting member of the business directory is Deeply Rooted Organics. They started with the Soil Cube, but they now offer an amazing line of tools for the kitchen. So you can grow local and cook local. Check out Deeply Rooted Organics 
www.thedirectorymedia.com. And uh, remember, you can be featured in the directory and on the show eventually for as little as five bucks a year to become a member of the directory. And if you do business with a directory member, folks, remember, it really helps a lot if you'll leave reviews. That helps everybody. That's the provider do better. That helps, you know, we, we want a free market, and a free market is based on reputation. And reputation can be developed by satisfied customers saying they're satisfied or unsatisfied customers saying this was a mistake and having that company come back and go, we will fix that. That's actually the most valuable thing that I see happening in a real free market. Isn't like this guy never makes a mistake because we all screw stuff up sooner or later. But a willingness to correct mistakes and take responsibility for them, that's, that's a company that I trust and want to do business with. If you don't have anybody saying you screwed up, maybe you just didn't screw up yet and maybe you'll screw up with me. But if you've screwed up before and fixed it, now I know what to expect if the inevitable happens. Because, you know, shipping products by U.S. mail, geez, somebody might screw up that's not you. I'm just saying. Next up, I want to remind you that uh, we do have the Survival Podcast edition of the MT Knives Genesis 2 on sale at tspgear.com for $99. This is the knife I carry every day. I have several versions of it, but I carry one, one thereof. Every day of my life, this knife is around my neck, and there's good reason for it. With MSB Discount, if you had it, you can get that knife for $89. Bucks. This is a custom knife made by Patrick Rohrman of MT Knives. It's, it's, it's a fantastic knife, amazing uh, surgical uh, quality steel that he's using on these knives. The Genesis 2 with TSP and MT Knives logo, available for $89 with MSB Discount. There'll be a link in today's show notes about that. Also remember, there's about only a week left to vote for the Tuesday shows, the Just Jack shows for June Uh, it's going to run out very, very soon, so get on over to the forum and vote on that. There'll be links in the show notes for that, too, as well today. And lastly, if you'd like to support our show and you want it to be really easy and actually not cost you anything, even time, the next time you're going to shop on Amazon.com, which most of you probably do a couple times a month at least, Don't go to Amazon.com. Go to TSPAS. That's right, T-S-P-A-Z, TSPAS.com. And uh, when you do that, you'll put in one less letter than Amazon.com, and magically you'll just appear at Amazon, and we'll get credit for your business as an affiliate of Amazon. Amazon gets advertising on every episode of the show. You get to support the show. It doesn't really cost you anything. It's probably the easiest thing you can do to support our work at TSP. So please consider doing that. And with that, let's get into our closing song of the day. Many of you know um, I had the good fortune to meet uh, a musician by the name of Cole Reisner, uh, who I had played several events for me here at uh, Namal Farm and TSP Ranch uh, last fall. I think Cole's a great guy, and he's an extremely talented musician, and uh, live shows he does are awesome. And uh, recently, I backed uh, one of his Kickstarters that was successful in uh, raising funds to develop his first full-length album. And that album is called uh, Better Man. And uh, he sent me a copy of that, and I'm going to play the title track for you today. And it's called Better Man. And I'll tell you, just personally, this song just makes me think of my wife. And I'd say that uh, in a good relationship, whether it's not a one-way street. It's not just that a wife helps a man become a better man, but a man helps his, his wife become a better woman. And if you have that, you are incredibly blessed. And we did a show yesterday about you know building a business, and I talked about the sacrifice that it takes. And in such sacrifice, I always want to point out that 
you you have to balance sacrifice with taking care of the people around you. And if you're not becoming a better person on a daily basis, if you're not becoming, let me put it to you this way, whatever you are, you're going to become more of it. And it's important that we keep our, our eyes on what we've become. Because we can change what we are. But if we don't, we'll become more of whatever it is. So if we are miserable and we don't act to change it, we'll become more miserable. That's just a natural progression. If we're happy and we, and we, 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 we latch on to happiness and joy, over time we will determine how to become more happy. If we are working towards success in our lives and our families, our careers, etc., and we latch on to that, we'll become more of it. If we feel unsuccessful, we will find ways to make that prophecy come true. The fundamental realities. When we get things in balance, especially in a family, we're all making each other better every day. If we focus on where we are and we make corrections to that. With that, This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You love